What's up, guys? I'm so excited to have the 30-year-old real estate guru, Graham Stefan, on the show. You may know him from his crazy successful YouTube channel, or maybe you follow the Iced Coffee Hour podcast he hosts every week. Either way, if you're not familiar with Graham, you're in for a treat today as we break down how he started a highly successful career in real estate during the financial crisis of 2008 at only 18 years old. He's sharing nuggets of wisdom around investing he's picked up along the way and how you can pivot your thinking and strategy to make money in the recession that we're in right now. I hope you guys enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. And if you do, please leave a review on the podcast. It really is the best way to support us so that we can help get this bad boy out to more people just like you trying to push their potential and be legendary. I'm Tom Bilyeu and welcome to Impact Theory. In the beginning, I was just, I wouldn't take no for an answer. I think it was very stubborn. And I just viewed everything like that. Like whatever I'm spending, 10% I could be getting every year, forever. If I could earn enough, then I'll never have to worry about like working a job I didn't like or having to report to a boss. I could have $10 a year for the rest of my life if I just invest this money in real estate. Graham Stefan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is uh, quite the setup you have here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. So tell us, what can people do to make money in a recession? I've always been a proponent of doubling down on whatever you're doing, work twice as hard, save twice as much, really take advantage of any opportunity that you have because I got my career started in 2008. Like I got into real estate right as it had like peaked and had just cresting and was starting to go back down. And I remember everyone telling me, oh, you're too late for that. The market's going down. Now's a terrible time. You should go to college. Um, I just saw that as such a cool opportunity because like I had no reference point for what was good or what was bad. Mm-hmm. So anything for me was like a success. How old were you in 2008? 18. Whoa. Yeah. You got into real estate, into real estate. at 18? Yeah. How'd you have a capital? I had a few thousand dollars that I had saved up working part-time throughout high school. And so I used some of that money to get my real estate license. Mm. And the cost of that, I mean, the bar is set so low because you, I took my classes online. They sent like some textbooks. I took a state test. Uh, it was maybe a few hundred dollars to register with the state of California, like to get your fingerprints and whatnot. I mean, very low startup capital, but then the difficulty becomes making money. Mm. Uh, so actually getting licensed and jumping in, pretty much anyone can do it if you have a grand. Okay. So the big winners are the people that in 2008, they were like, no, no, no there's still a deeper bottom coming. Correct. What were they looking at? Because one of, so my base assumption that we will see if I'm right yeah, about sure. this interview, because you know a lot more about this than I do. But my base assumption from an investing standpoint is that if you want to make money in a recession, you want to be the average person. The average person is going to want to look at things as being on discount, you buy things, dollar cost average away, this is a great time because things are down. So if I'm looking at the real estate industry, what I wanna understand is the savvy investor, what signals are they looking for? Because I'm, I'm a big believer that the average person, again, the average person doesn't know enough to try to time the market. Uh-huh. But the story I hear you telling about what happened in 2008 was the guys that won understood how to time the market, that they actually understood the difference. I'm even in hindsight thinking 2008 was the moment. So how in real time did they know 2008's not the moment despite all the blood? I remember people living in tents and parks. It was crazy, man. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. So in that moment, I would have wished, given all the sort of typical wisdom that you hear, I would have wished I could have bought in at that time. I had not yet made my yeah. money. So what were savvy people queuing off of to know to wait? At least from my own experience is that we saw a lot of foreign buyers come in around 
2010. And I remember they would have buses of people going through and there would be like 30 people in a bus going through these properties that were millions of dollars in Beverly Hills. And they would look through and they'd, they'd have a notepad just like this and they'd write down what they like and what they don't like. And they would make offers on every single house that they saw. Just Maybe super not, low. Yeah. And, but, but they were coming in buses. Like they were flying in overseas and just buying anything that they could. And I think there was a shift around that time where people began to see, wait a second, all these investors are buying a property. You, 2010 was the year where you started to see all those ads on TV. There was, there was a, a surfer guy who, who was in his 40s who ran this huge uh, operation of running ads of like, we buy ugly houses. And he was buying thousands, thousands of homes. And I think there was a sentiment that just changed where... Did he win or did he get obliterated? I, 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 I don't know. I, I mean, I'm guessing he made quite a lot of money. I mean, he probably 10x'd his money. Um, because he was buying properties and then fixing them up. I don't know if he flipped them, if he rented them, but his timing on that was fantastic. And so, sorry, that was in 2008 or 2010? That was 2010. Okay, so he was smart enough to wait. So the guys that, if somebody had bought in 2008 and held until whatever magic day now that we know with historical hindsight, mm -hmm. whether that was 2020, 2021, whatever, would they have won or yes, lost? they would have won. Okay. Long so. term, it doesn't really make it. Like if you had bought a property at the peak in 2006, in a lot of areas, I'm sure there's some areas that are down, but I would say the majority, at least from what I could see here in Los Angeles, you would be up substantially. I mean, you would be probably double, maybe double and a half, triple mm. uh, what that purchase price was. So over a long enough period, most areas will do well. Uh, the tricky part is in the short term, everyone checks their home on Zillow like every month to see like, oh, I made money this month or I, you know, I lost a little bit, darn. Uh, in the long term, as long as you can make the payments. The trouble was that a lot of people in 2006 were buying properties that couldn't make the payments. And that's where, that's where the issue became. Now, even if you bought a property at, let's just say, the, you know, the, the top of the market, which would have really been like January 2022, as long as they can make the payments, it doesn't really make a huge difference because even if property values go down and interest rates go up, your monthly payment would be about the same still. Okay, so I'm trying to get to principles that people can apply to the moment now. Mm. So as you look at this moment now, your initial advice was double down on whatever you're doing. But let's assume that somebody's coming into this and they, they're not doing anything. They're, they're just now of age where they can actually start deploying capital. Mm -hmm. What are the principles? So it seems to me like things are going down, the stock market's down. This feels like a time where you want dry powder, you'd want to be able to start buying. I have a principle not to try to time the market. Out of ignorance to myself, there might be people more savvy than me, but when you look at the numbers, that never seems to pan out. It's like less than 5% of people can beat the I market agree. even for two years. So it's like, just seems like a, a sort of crazy yeah. thing. But if there are principles that we can apply to say, okay, the beginning of a recession is never, I'm just making it up yeah, to sure. give you an example of a principle. The beginning of a recession is never the time you want to do it. You want to do it 18 months after the recession. That, I don't know See, what don't it is, but. Yeah, I don't believe in any of that. Unlike you, generally you cannot time the market. It's going to be pretty much impossible. That's why I think the things that you can control are uh, the effort that you put into your job, staying employed, keeping an income. As far as real estate's concerned, the things you do have control, do you shop around your mortgage interest rate? Do you make offers on houses? Are you aggressive with your offers? Do you understand the market? And can you find a home that you feel is undervalued or a home that needs some work? Because any one of those things you have direct control over. 
a lot of these things in hindsight, yes, it's easy to say that, you know, the market's lower in 2010 as it was in 2008. And in hindsight, it's very easy to say, well, now all these investors are buying in and probably they're right. Uh, but I think for the average person, for what they can control, those few things will set them up way better than most. Okay. So do you have timeless principles that you think apply in this moment? Like, let me ask yeah. blatantly, is this a better opportunity than most to make money given that, I mean, I, I know that they're saying that this isn't technically yet a recession. I would disagree, Correct. but um, is this a better time than most or it literally doesn't matter? Way better than last year, but a lot of it's in hindsight. I mean, anything could change so quickly. So I think forecasting anything is, is very difficult. For me personally, I see, and this is again just what I'm doing, I probably see an opportunity in commercial real estate. Prices are already down about 15% from their high. I think if cap rates are right now four and a half, five percent so a property's yielding, let's just say 5%, but you could get a treasury right now for the next two years at 4.6%, the risk premium is not there for commercial. So I feel like prices should have to come down. I could be totally wrong here, but I think prices in commercial have to come down to reflect the yield that would entice investors to buy into it. And I think a lot of sellers haven't caught up yet. I think real estate generally lags quite a long time because you have sellers who've locked in interest rates who don't need to sell. So what you see turning over are the properties that have to sell or the ones that really want to sell and move. And so that only reflects a small part of the market. So it takes time to catch up. So for me personally, I think probably in the next year, there's probably opportunity in commercial, but it's so location dependent too. It's like every location is going to be different. Uh, LA went down more than you know, parts of the Midwest terms of uh, sales. So it, it's every location is so different. It's like saying, you know, the whole stock market's going to go down when maybe this stock goes up and this one goes down and this one stays the same. How much do you use the bond market? Like, can we abstract that? I get how you're using it in real estate, but can we ab abstract that and apply that against all asset, asset classes? Or do you not think about the bond market like that? I think I think some of it, I think when it comes to the stock market, I have no idea. So I'm just buying index funds and I've just continued buying the exact same amount for the last few years. Because so. that's not your area of expertise? I just think when it comes to timing the market, it's pretty much impossible. And I know myself enough to know that I can't do that. Um, so I do look at bond yields to the extent of, well, if I'm getting 4.4% of my money right now, what's the risk premium that you'd have to make in the stock market to, to bridge that gap, to take the risk? Um, I see for myself, probably just taking a diversified approach. I mean, I have like 30% cash right now, but a lot of that's to buy commercial. Mm. And that's something I want to wait on until I find the right opportunity. But until then, I just lowball properties and just see what sticks. I'm going to make an aggressive statement. Tell me sure. if you agree or disagree. Day trading is financial suicide. Correct. Yeah. So it's interesting when I, I really want there to be like this really sexy answer and that I'm just not smart enough. And if I could just figure this out, then I'd really blow it up. Um, but I get the feeling that the right answer for stock market investing, in fact, no, I'm going to abstract it. The right answer for investing is as follows. And Graham Stefan is going to slap me around if I get this wrong. You want to have a diversified portfolio. Mm -hmm. You want to blindly invest in a set of index funds that are very well known and highly respected. And when I say blindly I, I mean, as blindly as possible. The S&P 500 would be a good example. You're going to put whatever amount you're going to put into the stock market is going to be wildly disproportionately into index funds like that. Mm -hmm. You are going to dollar cost average in because who knows, and you can't time the market. 
and you're going to only invest the amount of money that you can leave in for 20 years. Yeah, that's pretty as good. like a basic thing. Yeah. Um, you might take some portion of your portfolio or the money that you're going to invest because, God, in my early 20s, I wouldn't have even known what you meant by portfolio. Mm. Uh, the amount of money that you're going to invest and do something that's higher risk. If you want, you can day trade it, but just if you're day trading it, understand that that is literally going to the roulette wheel yep. and throwing it down. You did a really fun experiment where you literally had a monkey. Yeah, it did well pick the first stocks, year. Yeah. Which is awesome. In fact, walk people through. So the, the reason that I've come to that sort of basic breakdown, we can get into the, so every time you talk real estate, people listening need to understand you have expertise in real estate. Mm-hmm. That's really important because that becomes the other part yes. that ties back to your initial thing that if you're an expert in something, double down on it. This is why I pour so much money into my business. This is what I know how to do. Uh-huh. So for somebody else, investing the kind of money that I'm investing into a business would be suicidal. But for me, given how long I've been doing it, while it's still very high risk and I'm not foolish enough to think that it's not, it's a far more controlled risk for me in an area of expertise. But anyway, I've talked to a lot of people about just sort of what, what is that average saying that the average person should do? It's about being in the market for a long time, dollar cost averaging and holding, doing the thing that's really kind of impossible, sounds easy but isn't, mm-hmm. buy low, sell high. We can get into why people can't do that psychologically. It, it, it is almost impossible for the average person to actually do that, which is why very few mm-hmm. people make money. But walk me through the reality of why you could beat, I forget, you listed all the different people that you beat with the monkey picking the stocks for oh, the first yeah. year. But why did that work? What's your hypothesis? Well, initially going into it, there was a study that smaller stocks perform slightly better because they have more growth potential. And so at that time, everything was going up. And I saw my risk investing in, because this was really just, I took the S&P 500, and then I correlated a random number generator to correspond to each uh, ranking out of 500 stocks on that list. I knew just right off the bat, S&P 500 companies are probably going to do well. Picking 10 of them gives me a big enough sample size where I know I'm not going to lose all of my money. I mean, it's possible, but like highly unlikely. And then I think it was smaller stocks generated on average, and I could be wrong here. I'm just off the top of my head. I think it was like 11.5%, while larger stocks returned an average of like 8%, 8.5%, something like that. So I thought chances are over one year, this should end up doing better. But even my worst case, I looked at the, the downside risk first. I'm like, realistically downside, I, I could lose 40%, 30%. But the upside is whatever. I did it for the video. I didn't really care. So this could have gone down to zero and be like, hey guys, well, here's a video on it now. I lost all my money. That was my thought process going through it. But it performed quite well, better than I ever expected. It made 44% in the first year, Whoa. Uh, which I think is a, is, is a testament that like anyone could make money in 2020 and 2021. It didn't matter what you were investing in. And I think it gave a lot of people false confidence that they could both time the market and also that they were good investors. When a monkey made 44%, mm-hmm. and that was picked out of a uh, you know glass container. Okay, so you tried again, it fails. Do you think that it failed just because of the market conditions change? Yeah, it actually didn't do as bad as I thought. Um, I think the monkey portfolio was down at the time I did the video. The monkey portfolio was down. 20%. The S&P 500 was down 17%. Okay. So it didn't quite lag. as like it, it did better than I'm sure a lot of personal portfolios out there of individual stock picks. Uh, didn't do bad. I mean, because the money was either going to be invested for a YouTube video or the S&P or like a total stock market index fund. So being down 20% and being able to like use this as an experiment 
I think it's a win. Okay, so I took from that some principles about why people have such a hard time buying low and selling high. I'm really curious to see what you think about this. So to me, this is purely a game of psychology. You've got the reason people, the reason the average person, I want to be very clear, I'm not talking about your Warren Buffetts and people like that who just have an insane amount of discipline. They have principles, which is, again, the kind of thing I'm always trying to get back to is how do we abstract this into a principle? But the principle that I abstract out of the monkey example is that the monkey is obviously picking unemotionally. They're not trying to look cool, whatever. They don't even know what they're doing. They're just reaching into a thing. Now, you've pre-defined what they're going to choose from, so it's not yeah. as wide of a gamut where they could randomly pick you know, penny stocks that right. are going to end up being you know, terrible lead companies. So we, we rein them in a bit. But they're not picking emotionally. They aren't making the classic mistake that people make, which is when you hear something on Twitter or you read something in an article, whatever, it feels almost like insider information. It feels like I'm alone in my room. I'm coming across this piece of information. It feels like somebody's sort of whispering it in my ear. I feel now smart, clever for paying attention. I feel like I know something somebody else doesn't. I don't recognize that by the time that information makes it into a tweet or an article, it's already priced into the stock, so I go and grab it. Then the other thing that I'm not accounting for is just how long a year, two years, three years, five years, 20 years really is. And the reason that I can't anticipate how long that is is because I don't know what it's like to be judged by the anonymous people on the internet, my family, et cetera. So I go from this moment of feeling like I'm cool, which got me to buy the sinks. I think I know something other people don't know that makes me feel special to the internet is telling me I'm a fucking idiot and that that's okay if I only have to survive that for a month or two months, maybe six months I can like swallow it if things start moving again. But dude, to look like a dumbass for two years, most people just can't do it. They, they didn't invest in a thesis. Yeah. So how do you advise people to combat that human proclivity? Uh, I always think it helps to look at the historical data. I mean, anytime I make a video, I, I, I'll sometimes put in my thoughts at the end, but I make the entire subject of the video about the historical data. And I work really hard to make sure that anything I say is verified or has some sort of significance to it. Um, that's what makes me feel better personally, is just, hey, if the market's down 20%, here's the last 10 times it's bound, you know, been down 20%. And here's how it looks 15 years later. And here's the, the, the studies on this and that. I think it was in the first year of investing, you have a 70% chance of uh, being profitable. Uh, that goes up to 80-something, 80 85% in the second year, 90% in the third year. By the time you get to 20 years, so far in the past, over like 100 and something years, it's been 100% positive. Sure, there could always be that one time where it's like, yep, uh, that was the time I invested and it wasn't after 20. It's always possible. But when you look at dollar cost averaging over, over that 20 years, um, you have such a wide margin of getting dividends, of buying lower if it keeps dropping, that should even out. So I just look at the data. And that, to me, makes me feel safer, just seeing what it's done in the past and recognizing that what we're going through today is unique, but it's nothing that people in the past didn't also think was unique. Where do you go to find the data? I look through the most boring studies, uh, anything that I could find on that. Uh, there have been multiple Harvard studies. And I, I read through like the full-on 90 to 100-page like dissertations on investing. I find the randomest sources through Google. I'll just 
find their sources that they've listed and then find the original. Like sometimes I'll, I'll see something on CNBC and they'll include a chart on there and it said, you know, source of this study. And then I'll search for that study and I'll read the whole thing to see where they pulled that one chart from and see like the background and how they came to that. Like I go, if you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world like Shopify for whatever and wherever you want to sell from launching to going international. Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start, run, and grow your business. It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you back in the day, it was a lot harder. I'm so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all US e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with ebay motors brake kits led headlights exhaust kits turbochargers bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply really into this just because I find it interesting. And usually you could find some other hidden gems in there as well. How much do you let that? So if we both agree that the the most widely usable process for approaching this is hands-off, mm-hmm. it's long-term, how much are you using that information to actually inform how you're investing versus, um, I guess, just a, an almost research analytical fascination a lot of the analytical fascination is purely just so i can make a video talking about it Mm -hmm. um for people who haven't seen other videos uh, i find it interesting honestly none of it's needed i mean at the end of the day i think a total world stock market index fund is probably the ideal approach for a lot of people so um is that what you have yeah okay so for mix so i have the s p I have a world market index or some overlap there in international stocks. All right, let's start breaking these down for people. What is the S&P 500? Top 500 largest publicly traded stocks in the U.S. And so that encompasses everything from Tesla, Apple, Amazon. Is there a group of humans looking at that, deciding who to leave on? And yeah, so they, have, so they have a review committee, and there are requirements that must be met in order to be within the S&P. And what happens is that as other companies come up, they'll eventually replace those uh, that don't meet that minimum requirement. Or maybe let's say you know, stock number 499 is not performing as well as this other stock over here, so they'll swap it out. And I think that review committee meets, gosh, like I, I don't know if that, I think it's every quarter. Um, 
And review. that fund then is being managed at that point. They're actually selling some of my shares because I've bought into this whole thing. Yeah. They sell some and they buy some others. They'll rebalance, correct. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah, that way, that's why it was such a big deal when Tesla was being added because the, the big talk was that, oh, they're going to have to sell and like buy such a huge quantity of Tesla stock to allocate it because it was at the, like, the very top. So I don't, I don't know the exact numbers on that, but I remember that being such a big talking point of like, oh, how, how many people are going to buy Tesla stock now that it's included? Interesting. So, all right, that's the S&P 500. Talk to me about the more global stuff and how do I get access to that? Is this like, are you... What do you recommend people do? Vanguard, Robinhood, something else? You could use any big brokerage. Um, as far as you could go, you know, step further, total stock market index, it includes like small cap stocks, smaller companies. Um, be a little bit more volatile, but you include way more companies. And um, I also believe international stocks is a place for them. I think a lot of people get worried that uh, that international has underperformed the U.S. for quite some time. But there are also times, I think during the, the 70s and 90s, that international stocks outperformed the U.S. And I just see that as a bit of a counterbalance where, you know, hey, if the U.S. is, is not doing as well, perhaps international stocks might. Give us a rough breakdown of where your portfolio is. Assume people don't know you because I know you've covered this. Yeah. Content. Uh, just right off the bat, it's probably 30-something percent real estate, 30-something percent stocks. And all the stocks are, 85% of the stocks are probably index funds for the most part, 15% larger companies or larger individual positions within that that I have, uh, 30-ish percent cash, 10% would be other, and that might be alternative investments. Um, the crypto allocation I have, I think it's about 3%, and that's a split 50-50 Bitcoin, Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there's some other little, I mean, that's about Is 100%. that schmuck insurance, or do you actually think there's something there? I think perhaps there's something there. I'd rather take the small risk and be in it then no risk and not. Um, I basically, any, anything I invest in crypto, I just mentally write it off as zero. I just assume it's nothing. And if something comes from that, great, but I'm not banking on it. Mm. I, th- I think it's incredibly interesting and I like the premise of it, but I just see it as uh, something to have. Th- that's a part of like the risky, you know, I think 5%, you know, risky play something, you know, it, it kind of gets it out of your system for me. That would be Bitcoin, Ethereum. Mm. Now, in terms of time allocation, how much of your time are you spending in real estate versus the stocks and all that? Stocks is automated. Uh, that I just buy a little bit every single day, and that's been my thing. Literally automated, or no, just I philosophically do it. I, automated? I do it. Okay, I, it's it's part of my routine. It's so weird, but I like being able to like buy every day. So I, it's the first thing I do when I wake up is I open my app and uh, I just place the order. It's the exact same dollar side. What you're gonna buy that day? Is it just equally distributed oh, it's across? Equally distributed. Oh yeah, I buy the exact same thing. It's just the the S and P International for the most part. So total stock market, just every day. And I, just, I, just I assume wake you up. could do that man or automatically. Is there a reason that you do that manually? No, it's just a, I don't know. I just I have a routine where it's every morning. It's just like as I'm waking up, I'm still in bed. It's like over the market, buy. It's just, I've gotten a habit. I've been doing that now for two and a half years, almost three years, three years. Interesting. And do you uh, ever find, because I've heard you say that you'll check the market, see if there's something that you're going to make a video about. And if not, you go back to bed. And I thought that seems like a recipe for getting stressed and getting immediately out of bed every day. I'm always out of bed every day. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll never really go back to bed, but every morning I will check what's going on in the market. But part of that is like, I feel like that's my 
job in a sense of like talking about what's going on in the market. So it's up to me to pick the topics that I think are going to do well. Mm. Um, do you have any sort of emotional reaction when you see it? No. Up or I, down doesn't matter. Uh, no, no, it doesn't matter. Generally, when the market's down, there are more interesting topics I've found. Um, someone said this or someone did that. And for me, I just enjoy talking about them. I'm, I'm just like, it's like, if, imagine if you were really interested in, let's say, coffee and like the coffee market, like having a buddy you could talk to every single day. Guess what just happened with coffee today? This and that. It's just, I enjoy it. Mm. What are the big levers that you pay attention to? Like, obviously, the Fed raising rates, all that stuff matters, or does it? It certainly seems to, from my layman's position. Yeah, it does. I, th- I think it has a huge impact on the market. I think in- inflation, I-, I pay attention closely, but I also know that it's not exactly rooted in what a lot of people are experiencing. Um, what do you mean by that? The inflation numbers that they have... Uh, they, they hand select certain things like uh, owner's equivalent of rent is a great example where it's you're not getting the full rent increases you're getting what an owner would rent out their home for uh, instead of what rents actually are if someone were to leave their building and go rent something new so that skews a little bit uh, you also account for additional features that were no longer available like let's say uh, your your iPhone. Uh, 20 years ago, that would have been, they would have tracked the cost of like, what's a phone and what's an, you know, having a computer and having a, a, you know, camera and how those have all gone up in price, but those have become now somewhat obsolete with your phone. So they, so they group those together to come up with an inflation number based on your phone. Um, Same with food. It's, can, it does the price stay the same, but you get less quantity shrinkflation. How does that play? So there are ways that they can, subtly manipulate the inflation numbers to a certain degree. I, st- I believe in certain categories they can be higher or lower depending on like what you're spending money on. Uh, but in that sense, it's, it's interesting once you start diving into exactly how they calculate the inflation rate. And they have a whole, they have, I don't know, a hundred things that they calculate from like, you know, the cost of getting your haircuts to, you know, the cost of used cars, new cars. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild what, what can be tracked. And how much does that, does that influence you from a content creation standpoint, or does that influence how you actually approach your investing? No. Uh, as far as investing, no. Purely content creation. I mean, everything that I do day to day is just, it's my life. It's what I think about 24-7 is just like, what would make a good video? That's all I think about. It's interesting. Do so you... that's, I separate that from investing. It's just like, I could not do anything and just buy into the market every day. Keep an eye out for a good real estate deal that makes sense. Compare that with what, with what I could get with treasuries. So it's just like I look at my options and think, what, what are the best options right now? Where can I find the most opportunity? That, that's all I would do if I was not doing YouTube. Do you make more off of the investing or off of the YouTube content? YouTube by far. But investing is passive. It's like a lot of people say, well, no, you make all your money with YouTube. But it's true. But I'm not spending you know, 12 hours a day, seven days a week mm. working on my investing. Um, YouTube is like a job, but investing is, is still substantial for me. And how did you make your earliest money? I'm guessing that was all pre-YouTube. That was all YouTube. I hit my first million before making a YouTube video. And part of, part of my reasoning for making the YouTube video was that I could say, like, I was a millionaire and use that in the title. And so, like, that was part of it was, like, my first video, How I Became a Millionaire in Real Estate by 26. And that was my first video. Um, the first million was a combination of working as a real estate agent, increasing my income, 
reinvesting all of that into buying real estate. Mm. In 2011, early 2012, I bought three properties. Just Those, off of commissions you were making as yeah, a... Correct. Um, three properties. Those went up in value, and then I saved, save, 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 save. And then I bought another property. I think it was 2015 uh, in West Los Angeles. How did you get the job, by the way? So for people that don't know, you worked for the Oppenheim Group. But that's the guys behind yeah. like Sunset happens yeah. to be the guys that sold me the house that we're in right now. Yeah. How, what was it about you? Cause I spoke to Jason mm-hmm. about you. Oh, that's cool. You did. And yeah. Asked him what he thought about you. Uh, and he said you were very sharp, but I'm curious what that's it rough. is that you think made you so good. Getting to a million by 26 is freakish mm-hmm. sort of no matter what the industry and to get, the attention of a high performer like that, I'm curious what you think. What was your skill set? Other than being bright, yeah. we'll take that off the table. That's clear. Um, well, in the beginning, I was just, I wouldn't take no for an answer. I think it was very stubborn because when I was getting my real estate license, I wanted to go and meet other agents. So every single Sunday for months, I'd go to open houses and I'd schedule out just the open houses worth more than five million bucks. I knew that like I wanted to sell those houses one day. Mm. And I'd go to open houses and just meet other agents and just say, like, hey, I'm getting my license. And I'd, like, you must have looked so young. It was, it was, yeah, I didn't, know, I didn't know how to dress either because I would wear this like over, like, uh, oversized like, button-down shirt and like, I would tuck it into my pants. It was horrible. Thank God I don't have any pictures back then. But I would go to these agents and just ask, like, hey, I'm getting my license. What do you recommend? Like, what can I learn? What, how do you get your clients? And almost everybody was saying now's a bad time to get in the real estate industry. Uh, things are really slow. You should go to college. Almost everyone said that. Uh, there were one agent was really nice. Her name was Ginger Glass, and she's also a top agent here in LA. She was one of the few people who actually gave me some advice. It's like it's a great business. Here's how I made you know. Uh, um, here's how I met a lot of clients. Here's what you could do. She was fantastic. One of the few people, and I remember that. Do you remember Ginger's uh, secrets? No. Damn it. What's that? No, I'm just so curious to oh, know, yeah. like, what are the what are the classics that Ginger handed over? I don't remember. I just remember her answers being like very kind, uh, and her taking the time. I think it was maybe five minutes. It was a busy open house in Bel Air, but I remember her taking the time and just you know talking to me. I don't remember exactly what the specifics were. I was going. I was so nervous. Like I, I wasn't that I had to walk up to strangers at all. So I was like forcing myself mm. to go up and talk to people. Um, but the one I do remember. Uh, I went up to a, an open house in Bel Air. I walked in. It was so slow that day. Like no one had, was coming in. I think that the home was priced at like four and a half million around there. And I talked to this agent for like two hours and just like, he got also in the business when he was 18, he was foreign. He said he, he moved to America, could barely speak the language, was working as a server, got his real estate license and ended up doing incredibly well. And I think he started like 2002, something like that, or early 2000s. And um, he offered me an opportunity after, after two hours of talking. He said, hey, if you want to come help me out, uh, come down to my office the next day. And I, like, I showed up and I brought uh, chocolate-covered strawberries as a gift. And I show up there and I just was just there for the day, just watching him. Like no expectation of making money, nothing. I just I wanted to learn. And from there, it evolved into uh, a relationship where I would work with him for free. I would do anything he wanted for free, and I just wanted to learn. And any business that I brought in, we would split 50-50. What do you think about people that suggest to young people that they should be willing to work for free? Worked for me. 
I think it's it's one of the best things that you could do. Even Jack over here worked for free. Uh, that was that was his in. He sent an email, and his email is just like, I just want to help. I just want to learn. I don't want anything in return. I just want to do this, and it worked. I mean, I I don't see it as being a bad thing. And for me, what it was not about the money in the beginning. I mean, it that was certainly why not. I enjoyed it. I don't know. It was about the freedom of being able to be my own boss and feel like I'm doing something for myself. You're way too smart for that, Graham. I don't buy that. I think that was part yeah. of it. May, may I offer a potential sure. read? Please, yeah. I have a gut instinct. You're smart enough to know if I stop thinking about money for now, I'll learn. Money monetizes once, unless you invest well. But knowledge will monetize forever. And that's exactly why I want to throw the table over every time I hear somebody say that, oh, you should never let somebody like take advantage of you like that. Don't work for free. It's like, brah, if I'm going to be able to get the information, the contacts from somebody that's already doing it well, all day I'll work for free. I'd work for free now for whoever. Like if they've got something that I need to know, I'm in. And so it's just, it's insane to me that there's become this cultural pushback. You're not getting taken advantage of unless you're doing it poorly. So, all right. Anyway, so we go to this guy, we're working for free. He's going to now teach us something. Mm -hmm. Did he end up teaching you something that you Everything. I would say everything in the beginning, really for the first two years, three years, I would do anything he wanted. Um, If he wants me to go to an open house early, turn on all the lights, get it ready, print out all the listing paper, like anything. But I learned, that's how I learned. I learned how to do everything from like putting up open house signs to how to show a client. I would just be sitting there. He'd be showing around a client and I would just be turning on the lights, listening to how he would present the property. How many Um, hours a week are you working at this point? Every day, probably 12 hours a day. But I loved it. I mean, I didn't, I just wanted to do that. It you was, loved it because you like real estate, because you like people, or the freedom. I don't potential know. I was money. just obsessed with it. I just I think I had this personality trait where I, I latch on to like one thing and I just get obsessed with it mm. and I do nothing but that. And for me at that time was real estate. I just How do you make the most out of obsession? How do you translate that into something usable? Do you think about like, all right, you have to know I want to sell a ten million dollar house in the next three years and there now I have a goal and I'm gonna obsess over things that actually can lead me to that, or do you just more this seems exciting, I'm gonna pursue it. I don't know what's going. How have you managed to to make use of your obsession? I did I just intuition. I don't, I don't know. It just it felt to me like the right choice, and I just did it. Interesting. Yeah. I just tweeted about intuition today. Really? I get ragey over intuition. Do you think that you're born with intuition, or do you think that you had somehow trained your intuition? I don't know. I've, I've, I generally have always had a feeling of what I should be doing, and I've just Genetic? let that maybe... I, I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you. Um, like in high school, I was drawn to the drums or middle school, actually, I was drawn to the drums. And uh, I played in the, the middle school jazz band and they had like this little rinky drum set. And I just practiced on that. And that led to like me meeting so many friends in high school because I knew how to play the drums. I could play in like, you know, high school bands and whatnot. That just felt like the right choice at the time. Hmm. Um, aquariums were a big thing for me, too. And and. uh High school, I worked part-time at a marine aquarium wholesale. I just loved, that was another thing. I just got obsessed with it. I just loved aquariums for some reason. And that was another thing. I would work for free in the beginning. I didn't care about making money. I just wanted to be around fish and coral. Like, I found that so much fun. Hmm. Um, Are you really just a follow your bliss kind of guy? Or at least in the early years? 
I think in the early years now, I probably get too in my head about things. You know, if I have an intuition, oh, I should be doing this. It's it, it's hard now. I overthink things. Whereas I think in the past, I was more just like free about it. Like, what ah, it doesn't cause matter. that. Uh, I don't know. I, I probably just the experience of just having more reference points of like, hey, this, these things have worked out in the past. Like before, like if something didn't work out, I'd have. It wouldn't make a difference. I would just, you know, I was young. I would just do anything. Is it that you have something to lose now? Perhaps. Perhaps that that's it. Or there's more on the line. There's more to mm. risk. Um, YouTube has probably changed that a lot because now there's so many people watching. Yeah. So anything I do, I feel the pressure of just, like, being watched. Yeah. Where if it's just me, you know, you could pivot, you could do whatever. It's, it's just me. But... I, I think there's definitely that added layer of just like, well, what if I do is wrong, or what if it doesn't work, and just that pressure now probably How worse. How is the FTX thing? Bad. I mean, it's it's a terrible situation. That's something that I never saw coming. Mm. I never expected it, and that and that was a real wake up call for me, of just like, you know, I hate to say, I tr- I trusted them, and so going through that, uh, feeling like, you know, I I put my name on something, and going through that whole experience and seeing the impact that's had and then learning a lot about this like real time on Twitter has been both a horrible experience but also eye-opening of just like this this you know I, I put myself in the line of fire on this and so that's something I'll make sure never happens or I'll do my best so when you think about doing your best and obviously I have a vested interest in learning from you mm-hmm. Because when you're selecting advertisers, there's a certain level of like uh, how even just how you can conduct a a level of due diligence is difficult. So how will you avoid something like that again? I think right off the bat, it's I won't talk about anything that's not FDIC or SIPC insured. I think for me mentally, I thought I was in the clear because I wasn't talking about like a crypto coin. I wasn't talking about any specific investment. I'm like mm-hmm. the brokerage itself. And I've been a huge proponent of, you know, 5%, uh, you know, less than 5% of your net worth. If you want, you could risk it. And that's what I'm doing. Um, I think putting that amount of trust in a company like that who doesn't have the proper protections in place was a, was a mistake. And so going back to the idea of people watching, and so it adds like a layer of... I don't know, just add something different to choices. How has the reaction been and how do you think about navigating that as you move forward? Is it Has it been mild and you don't really have to think about it or has there been a lot of pushback and it's something that you're navigating through with your community? Because like, so we did um, NFTs doing NFTs. Yeah. I'm a huge believer. And so when we launched, my whole thing was, hey, don't treat this like an investment vehicle uh, this is something we're going to build for the long term. I don't know if it's going to go up in price or not. And so when we launched and it didn't rocket to the moon, everybody like blew up. And it was it was the first time where I realized, oh, there's a difference between an audience and a community. And so now I was like, oh wow, this is um, this is a whole thing. Like I need to put all my time and energy into managing the community and figuring out how. Uh, you know, we process through this and get everybody to understand where we're going, what we're like, all that. And so um, that was really big. What we ended up doing is different because it's a product. So I, because my background is product, it was easy. I just gave people refunds if they wanted to refund. But how do you think about managing the community or has it not been that kind of issue? It's been uh, an effort to sift through and find the constructive criticism 
because there are people who are going to hate, I think, no matter what you do. And, you know, they could, they could find anything they want to if they look hard enough. And I believe that, you know, there are some very valid points that I do need to take into consideration. And it, so it's, for me, it's sifting through and finding the ones that I feel are coming from a good place that I could implement for myself. Hmm. So has there been anything from that that you're like, okay, that's the, the good stuff. Obviously the, the vitriolic responses we can set aside, but mm-hmm. is there, what's like the keen insight as all of us try to navigate this, especially me, cause I'm not trying to get out of the web three world. I'm going deeper. I'm yeah. going deeper into crypto. It's more interesting. I believe in it more than ever, but it's like I in a million years never would have guessed just the level of scams that awaited. Yeah. Um, so we've got the making sure that something is pre-verified. That makes a lot of sense. Are there other things that the community has thrown out yeah, that you think I mean, are useful? I, I never understood just how much, you know, anytime I talk about something, how much my face and my likeness and just me as a person and my reputation is tied to that. Um, you know, for instance, I talk all the time about Ally Bank. And mm. I've been using it for years now. Um, I never made the connection so much of like how much my name is now associated with that or any product they talk about discover is another one it's like i've never been sponsored by them but i just i like their credit card that much but i worry that if even i talk about something like like i highly doubt anything's gonna with discover but i'm just saying like you never know like i i've been proven wrong and it makes me very weary about uh talking about anything mm. where i have my whole reputation tied to that i i think is a risk that I never fully considered to that point or to that extent. Yeah, I hear that. It is a, it is a fascinating thing. The big advantage to a company that's using, a, you know, a, a personality like you or me is that, hey, it's like they get to hear the words coming out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. And that obviously means something. But at the same time, I'm not going to tell you I'm using it unless I'm actually using it. So it's this really fascinating thing. I'm watching Jordan Peterson navigate this in real time where he does not do any of his own ad reads. It's mm-hmm. So there's a, a level of distance between him and the product, which is potentially interesting. But I think that in this day and age, you're far better off saying to the audience, hey, I'm going to carry some of the weight of like figuring out who these people are, doing my best. Yeah. But in the end, there's only going to be able to, there's only so much that you're going to be able to do ahead of time. It's interesting. I run into, because um, I haven't done a lot of crypto stuff despite my presence in the space. For me, it's more on the health side. So I'm like, God, always as a a guy that owned a nutrition company and that lives by certain things and is constantly talking about what I actually eat, I feel like an obligation to only bring on advertisers. I won't say that I use because we definitely have a lot of advertisers I don't use, but that are things that I think somebody else could benefit from. But yeah, it's a, it's a tricky landscape. I agree. How much interaction do you have with your community? Like, so I have a discord, so it's like hyper interactive. Yeah. It's a lot. Uh, I, I, that was another thing I became obsessive of. Up until a million subscribers, I answered 99% of the comments. I mean, almost every single comment. Uh, just like I you know, buy stocks every morning, I would not get out of bed until I answered every single comment. Jesus. And then I wouldn't go to bed until every comment was answered. Like up until the point where I last stopped. And just like throughout the day, I did that for a million subscribers because mm-hmm. I didn't know any other creator that would do that. And I felt like that's something that I could do for the audience. Because I know how much for me... I love YouTube, and so if I commented on like someone's video that I was watching before even making videos, if that person responded to me, like that made my day. Mm. And so I thought if I could give that back to another person, 
why am, why am I not doing that? Uh, especially if they take the time to subscribe or watch my video, I'm like so appreciative of that. So like if they comment, I'm gonna do my best to comment back. Now, it got to a point where I was spending like four hours a day on comments and it became, it started to hinder my ability to do anything else. So like I, I cut down dramatically. But even now, I still spend an hour after every video post responding to comments. It's really cool. I think that's a, a big way to make people feel connected. That makes a lot of sense. So as you navigate something like FTX, how much of that conversation is like, um, you did me dirty. And then from your side, it's like, okay, how do we begin to rebuild this bridge? Or have they reacted in a completely it, different it's way? It's tough because it's difficult to tell the trolls from actual constructive criticism. Sometimes mm. we'll see a comment on my page and then I'll see it exact from the same person on other people's page as well. Mm. And I know from like that person's not it, they want to get a reaction. And so it's, it's just, at least for me, I, I read, I want to say 90% of the comments, at least in the first hour, uh, maybe two hours, I, I see them all. Um, so it's about picking the pieces. I would say most, the overwhelming majority are positive, but you get the few that are, that are not. And that's, you know, even before anything, it was always, you know, they hate my facial expressions. They think I have a punchable face. They don't like my voice. I mean, there's always going to be something. And so, like I said, like, if you look hard enough, you'll find something. And there's always going to be something for everybody. Um, and I've gotten better about just being able to tone that out and, and think about where their perspective is and, and try to empathize with them and, and why, what led them to making that comment is what could it be? Is it something's bothering them? Is it something I'm doing? I, I try to take a very objective look at those comments. Yeah. What is your, if you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Community want from you. Like, what is the need that you meet in their life? I would say both entertainment and reinforcing the basics. I just, I've always been a proponent of like index funds. Saving money has been a big one. Um, consistency, I think, is very important. Um, mixed in with, I think, just some little mild humor that I find interesting. I mean, from the very beginning, I've just made the videos that I myself would want to watch. And I've just kind of taken that approach of like, if I was on YouTube today, what would I want me to talk about? And I just do that. And when you um, are coming up with the timeless elements and things and you start getting into the save, 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 how, like, I've heard you do both where it's like, hey, you really need to save hardcore. And then I heard you say that if you could go back in time, you might save a tiny bit less. No, you, you saw that video. That's a recent wind. video. But, wow. Uh, I'm watching them. Uh, of course. 
So what do you think about in that blend? How much should people be saving? Is it called fire lifestyle? Is yeah, that like financial ultra? independence. Retirement. So are you like that hardcore? I like I have these things I get obsessed with. And, you know, I, it's basically anything I do. I'm just like hardcore about it. But saving was one of those things. Where was it like, like a gamified thing for you or is it actually fun? I enjoyed it. Um, it was unhealthy to the point where I remember I'd be tracking gas and like not wanting to spend $5 in gas to go and see a friend. Like that's unhealthy not, because you end up not seeing the friend. Right. Got it. I'd see that five. I like, I kid you not. Um, this was, I had a job, uh, like around the time I was finishing up high school where I was earning, I think it was like $7 and 50 cents an hour, maybe like eight fifty, and that $5 in gas. I'm like, that's an hour. Like, I'm going to see this friend for two hours tonight. I'm going to spend an hour of that just working extra to pay that gas. It was like so stupid. Um, things like that wouldn't have mattered, but I, I guess I just thought in my mind how hard I would have to work to make that money. Mm. Um, and just like doing the cost benefit analysis of going and seeing a friend, like that stuff I should not have been doing. The so. part that was fun so we'll, we'll say that there's pathology on both sides, right? So you can spend way too much money and it becomes problematic. You're a degenerate gambler, whatever. You're racking up massive debt. And then over here, you don't spend the $5 to go see a friend and your life is, you know, loses richness for it. Correct. We'll say that you've backed off from that. How do you make that a fun experience? For somebody that's listening now that wants to create some dry powder to take advantage of opportunities, they're you, they're 18, they come to it, they're ready, they want to start getting into it, but they've got no money. How do you make that part of the journey enjoyable? I, I look at everything as uh, where can I get the best bang for the buck? Like where does my money go the furthest? And let's just say like going out to a bar. We'll give that as an example. The drinks there are... $15 each, or here in West Hollywood, like $18 a drink. Uh, what if you just have a drink with your friends at, uh, you know, at their place, and uh, you, know, you go out later, you get one drink instead of three. Well, now all of a sudden you've saved $36 or maybe $40 with the, with the tax and tip. Um, you get pretty much the same experience for way less. Um, Did I, you need to do anything to make that fun, or was that automatically interesting to you? I had to make that fun, just to yeah. sort of load the question here. So for me, I was just, if I had money, I spent it, just how I always was, living paycheck to paycheck, one time lost my job, I couldn't pay all my bills at the same time, like I was just always at a razor's edge. And then when I got married, I realized, okay, I have to find a way to make saving money fun. Otherwise, it's going to be a stressful marriage. And so I got the app Mint. I don't know it's, if it's still around. Right, yep. That was awesome. I still use Mint. It was pulling yeah. in my data and I could go, oh, I'm going to treat this like an 80s montage where we have to get the thermometer to raise. And, you know, I'm getting, as I save my $36, I'm actually going to put that into savings and go, hey, I would have spent this at the bar, but now I just save that. I need to see that. So now I'm going to apply it to a different account. So I made all these different mm -hmm. accounts. It was like, this is my spending money. And I just had an automatic amount that would go into it every month. Here's my bill, money, whatever. And then here's savings. Mm -hmm. And if I ever did something like, oh, I could go out and spend that money, but instead I'm going to save it, I would go actively move $36 over into my savings. I would see it go higher. Lisa and I would get around. Cool. We'd look at it and be like, oh, it's going up. Like, this is so neat. And setting goals and hitting the goals. And that... I was like, whoa, I actually gamified something I never thought that I could enjoy just by having dashboards, goals, 
And it's a little bit like when you're trying to lose weight. The losing the weight in and of itself is not fun, mm-hmm. but if you have something, and that something is so often the mirror, where it's like, you're like, oh my God, like I'm actually getting leaner. I can, you know, I'm going yeah. from a no pack to a two pack, from a two pack to a four pack. It actually gets pretty exciting, but you need that reinforcement of, you know, taking the photos and this is what sure. date it was and all that. And so, did you have something like that, or have you just always been really frugal by nature? Always been frugal by nature. I, I got mint, I think, in 2011, 2010. So I still have all of my data from back then, which is really cool. I still have the exact same account. They're all in there, Mm. and I've been able to track everything. Uh, I've always been interested in saving money, so that's just been like I've just been predispositioned to like just the default has always been save. Uh, In the beginning, though, when I started working as an an agent, I was so worried about consistency. It was like my income was so fluctuating, and I had no idea how much money I'd make. And so my thinking was that like, I, I was able to get like a 10 to 15% return on my real estate investments back then. And I would just think to myself, even assuming a 10% return, every $10,000 I save, that's $1,000 that I'd be able to make in real estate for the rest of my life. And I just viewed everything like that. Like whatever I'm spending, 10% I could be getting every year forever. And if I could earn enough, then I'll never have to worry about like working a job I didn't like or having to report to a boss. Or So that was a lot of my motivation of just like saving like a, you know, even uh, spending $100 going out, I'm like, I could have $10 a year for the rest of my life if I just invest this money in real estate. And so I just, you know, I, that was more exciting to me, just making the passive income. And so I just diverted everything towards that. And what is advice that you have for people that are looking at this exact moment and they don't know what to do? What's the advice that you give that, you know, most people won't take, but it's like the advice? Um, the things that have helped me the most early on, I would say the book, Think and Grow Rich. Interesting. I love that book. That book changed my life. It did. Me too. I can, I remember where I was when I read it. What was it about that book that hit you? I think the mindset that you're able to do it. I think all the mindset exercises and the belief that you could do it really sets you in the right trajectory, um, in terms of where you focus your energy. And I think so many people are only focusing on the negatives. Like, let's just say on this table, there's a hundred pieces of like, you know, a hundred coins. And then on the other side is like, you know, two of them are winners. I think a lot of people would just focus, oh, look at all the negative around it. Oh, there's all these, you know, only two, two, two out of a hundred, 2% chance of like hitting a winner. I, that book really taught me to focus on the winners and like, wow, there's two opportunities in there. Like, I'm going to find those two opportunities. If I, if I turn over a loser, I'm going to keep going. Whereas other people would see that. It's like, oh, there's, you know, there's only two. So I think it really made me focus on not all the negative and not all like, you know, the chances of failure, but like where, where are the opportunities here? And like just pinpointing those I think was huge for me. Why do you think people don't take that advice? I think that's a great question. I think it's hard to get out of a cycle. I think when you get on a path of hanging around the wrong people, that's all you know is is discouragement, negativity, hardship. I think it's really difficult to get yourself out of that. Um, and I've been in a very fortunate position, I think, to uh, like have a great family who's very supportive. And I guarantee if I didn't have that sort of backing of just like, just supporting me no matter what I wanted to do. Like, I don't know if it would have been as easy as it is for me today if I didn't have that, like, 
help in the beginning of just mm. just emotionally if i had a bad day like i knew i could talk to my parents about it um or just have their blessing behind like hey i don't want to go to college even though they wanted me to go to school it's just like you can do that um i think that's probably why i think it's really difficult to get out of that negative self-fulfilling cycle if all you know so far is failure why would you trust the process of thinking anything different mm. What do you think the role of short-term versus long-term thinking is going to play for somebody young right now who believes the system is broken? To your point, whether it's the people you're hanging out with or the message that is just getting beaten into people right now, hey, it's all broken, it's never going to work. And I'll, I'll, I guess, stop dancing around my bias in this Mm. question and just tell you sort of where it's coming from. So I think that this is a tremendous, whenever you have disruption, I think of it from a business lens. Whenever there's disruption in business, there's a huge opportunity. Most people, however, are blinded by momentum. They're moving in a certain direction to your point and they just can't get off that track. And so even in that moment of disruption, they never capitalize on it. And so the reason people say that there's more millionaires made in a depression is because there's so much disruption. Things are at a discount, but most people don't have the dry powder to be able to move. But even if they did, they don't have the willingness to make the bet. They don't have the expertise to know which bet to make, even if they do. And so you get this, you just sort of live through it. You go through the hard time, you never do anything. So we have this huge moment of disruption right now. I don't think virtually anybody's going to do anything with it. It's going to be that really narrow band of personality type that has the tolerance for risk. They happen to be at a point in their life where they have just enough dry powder where they can make a small investment. You actually had a really cool story about this. Oh God, where Ford, there was like at the beginning of the recession, you invested, like you had a lingering account with a couple hundred dollars in it, shipped it into Ford stock and then it ends up like, yeah, yeah, it was, it was one of those where I was like, okay, there's so many little things you had to understand and be the kind of person that would do certain things in that moment. Anyway, they don't even have the couple hundred or they have the couple hundred bucks, but they're, they're not going to deploy it against anything. They're going to go into defensive mode. They're not going to get offensive. Mm -hmm. And so I look at this moment and I think, okay. The vast, vast, vast majority, no matter what I say in this interview, they're not going to go do it. They're not going to dollar cost average. They're not going to pick an index fund and blindly invest. Um, They're not going to realize as the stock market is going down that that's when they should be buying. But to quote Warren Buffett, Mm -hmm. to paraphrase Warren Buffett, stocks are the only thing when the price goes down, people get averse. Like they don't want it. The the price of a car goes down, you get excited. The The price of a stock goes down, you don't. Because it's an emotional buy. I won't derail us all on that for a second. But so that's what I think is going to happen right now. I don't think people are going to capitalize on this. Now, maybe you think that's good as it should be, whatever. You don't want to push people out of their comfort zone. But just in case, that's not your answer. Do you think people should be on the offensive right now? Yeah, of course. I think now is the time. Like, I think from the very beginning, just like doubling down on what you're doing and the effort that you're putting in, now is not a time, I think, to take a step back or take your foot off the pedal. I think now is a time where you could really just learn as much as possible. Um, would you point think, people to a specific type of learning? I, I would say generally a career is probably the best option. Um, I see that as something that people have the most direct control over as they can in terms of where they spend their time. Is it spending time on TikTok for hours? I think I'm beginning to understand what you were trying to tell me in the beginning now. So you're saying, hey, you're going to do the passive investing thing. It's not going to take your time and energy. So that's not going to be where you double down, learn, grow, and get better. And that the average person should be thinking about their career. That's going to kick off some capital, put that capital in to the index fund and all that. Correct. 
Yeah, I think in terms of what people have direct control, like you can't control what the Fed does. You can't control what the stock market's going to do tomorrow. There's so many things outside of your control, but people spend the majority of their time focusing on that when they could be spending that time figuring out how they can make more money or how they could cut back to save more so that they have more left over. And I know that's easier said than done. Um, and I know a lot of people just aren't in the position where they could be like, oh, okay, I'll just work harder if they have you know, a family or responsibilities or other things that, that pull their time away. But I do you can think just always work harder, Graham, until you run out of hours. Uh, you may hate that, but I feel very strongly yeah. about that. But I, I think those things um, would benefit people the most. Interesting. Straight down the middle pitch. So, given that, why is your channel so successful? Because you're saying the basics over and over and over, largely to an audience that really knows you. Mm-hmm. So they're coming back. So. Is it that to your audience you take them into more nuanced territory, or is it just trying to reinforce time and again the uh, basics? I, I think that's good to a certain degree. I worry that it's repetitive, and I, I get the com. I, I see the comments of just like you know, you made this video before. You just talked about that. There's only so much when it comes to investing that you mm. could say before. Like I thought I was repeating myself after like a few months, just because a lot of the principles stay the same. I think to a certain audience, it helps to repeat the basics and they like just hearing the same message over again. Um, could be just like a personal trainer to the gym, like, hey, do more reps or you know, keep doing this, have this good form. Just it helps to be encouraged along the way and know you're at least maybe on the right track. But beyond that, it's like I just love making videos and I, I try to make them as entertaining as possible. And just thinking that if, if someone has like 15 minutes and they want to watch a video and maybe learn something new just something that i find interest that's always been the approach that i've taken is like what would i want to hear myself and what would i want to talk about mm. and then Do you i think, think people yeah. are looking to figure out when to buy and sell though i'm sure there has to be i think that's just human nature and what do you think about taking profits do you advise people to do that depends on their position i think if they invested like dogecoin is a great example I, i've seen so many people with life-changing amount of money with dogecoin and i'm like so dude sell like, and it's not me, like, you know, trying to give anyone financial advice here, but I'm like, you, you have a significant amount of money here. Why wouldn't you take that off the table? Like, this is life-changing here. And I, and I think it's a combination of maybe just greed or... Uh, Define greed for me. I always, I always hackle a little bit when people say greed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels more like excitement to me. No, I, I think greed. it's... I think it's wanting more or feeling like I've done this so far, why can't it continue? And I think it's a feeling... And that's used greed. I think under certain circumstances, yeah, I do. Um, I think it depends on the context, but yeah, I, I think it can be. Interesting. I mean, you are definitely in the majority. That's how everybody looks at it. And so thankfully, I'm in a position where I'd already made my money, but as we were doing the crypto stuff and it was just rocketing and I'm doing all this content telling people, look, I don't know where this is going, but I will tell you right now, you need to look at this. You need to understand it because this represents something. There's so much energy and so much momentum. And at a minimum, you need to look at it. And I had one guy in the company uh, off of a single text-based JPEG, Mm -hmm. text, man. It wasn't even an image. He was able to put a down payment on a house. It was six figures. It was crazy. I could not believe it. And so that was like 
people were, oh no, you should let it ride, whatever. I was like, bro, you, you can turn that into a house? Like, you need to, you need to do that. That makes all the sense in the world to me. But I never felt like, because I get the excitement of like, oh my God, like, I want this to go on forever. But I never saw it as, Greed, certainly not in myself. But now, wouldn't you say that's the same thing at a casino where if you, let's say, you put all your money on roulette and you mm. hit that number and you 32 extra money or 35, whatever the return is, you 30 extra money. And then that person says, let me do it again. I did it right. I was right on that one. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Double down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's to me, that's not greed. Did. That's gambling. So here, here is an utterly fascinating but part. But don't you of, think gambling can be greedy in a certain extent? I don't I mean, know. that's not Maybe. entertainment. I don't think people are necessarily entertained by that. I think that's the promise of easy money. Yes. So now we might be commingling something that I'm not tracking. But to stay on greed for a second. Mm-hmm. So here's the way gambling reads to me. Gambling becomes an addiction specifically because of dopamine. Uh-huh. So it becomes a dopamine problem. Dopamine is about the anticipation of a reward. It's not, I'm going to get something that you're not going to have. Now, it's possible that that's tied up for that person, and that's part of what makes it so exciting is, Wah-ha-ha, I'm going to be able to lord over these plebes because I'm going to win this thing. It's, it is very possible, uh-huh. especially if you're a dark triad person. But you're talking about dopamine. So then I'm like, okay, well, I get dopamine. I get it from playing a video game. Uh-huh. And there are times where I will keep working at a level because I want to win this level because I want that dopamine reward. I know it's going to feel so amazing if I win. And I wouldn't call that greed. And it, to me, is a very similar thing. And I think part of the reason people get themselves in trouble is they're told to watch out for greed. And when they get there, they're like, I'm not being greedy at all. This is just exciting. This is fun. This is cool. I think I can win. This will be amazing. And if I win, like good things will happen. So I think they're getting excited. And if people were told, watch out for the excitement, Now, I had never lived, because I just wasn't paying attention to finance at all, until, long story, my audience is tired of hearing me talk about it, until I had to learn about money because of the blockchain, I just didn't understand investing. I'm good at making money. I'm not good at investing money. So anyway, coming into all of this, um, it was all very fresh and very new for me. So as I'm doing this, and it starts to kick in that dopamine response, I'm like, oh, wow, I don't feel greedy at all. But that's what everyone keeps saying. But what I do feel is excitement. Now, just by way of definition of greed, greed to me is when you want to take something from somebody else so that you have more than them mm-hmm. and F them, right? And that part of the, the joy is like their downfall, that you just want to covet, 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 take, 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 versus what I think actually happens, and this is why people don't see it coming, when they get in it and people have warned them don't get greedy, they're waiting for that moment where they feel like Ebenezer Scrooge and they never get there. Mm-hmm. For them, it's just fun. It's a game. They're excited. Like, oh my God, this is going up. It's so cool. I'm going to be able to help people. I'm going to give my money away. There's no greed here. And then boom, they get obliterated yeah. because they didn't see it coming. That's well said. So if somebody yeah. were to start warning them, hey, watch out for the excitement. And this is where I was going. So I, I had never lived through euphoria before mm-hmm. in the market. And so when crypto blew up, I was like, there's so much energy. You feel like a genius. Everybody's in a good mood. It's like GM, GM, GM. I was just like crazy. And you feel this cultural energy that is intoxicating. And now I know that's what I have to watch out for. Mm -hmm. That if I feel that energy, the end is nigh. And knowing that now, like every bit of advice that I've heard from like real rock star investors starts clicking into place and you're like, oh my God, now I get what's happening. So that is, 
advice that I would give That's to people. That's well said. I like yeah. that. It's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So what are your, like, if you were going to give people sort of the, the prime nutshell of everything that you want them to know about investing over the next six to 12 months in this very strange climate that we have, but only investing. So take their career, all that, set that yeah. off to the side. Do they pick a lane to learn about something? So we're gonna, we'll give them what I call the R-S-T-L-N-E, if you're familiar with uh, Wheel of Fortune. So we'll have them, you're gonna dollar cost average in, you're gonna do index funds. So they've heard that mm -hmm. the first part of this interview. But now we're gonna take that discretionary part, or let's say that this is somebody who's just excited. They love this stuff. And so they wanna do a little bit of buying and selling. It's gonna be a small part of their portfolio, but how do you get them pointed in the right direction? That's a, that's a loaded question. I don't know <laughs> because um, I, I mean, it should be a part where they don't need the money. I mean, first and foremost, it would be, it would be terrible if, if they invested in anything where it's like, they need that six months from now. They're like, I, I can't pay my rent because of this. I generally say, um, and I like investing companies that, that I personally use and like, and uh, I wanted to actually make a video about this, and I realized it would take too long and cost too much money. But I wanted to invest $100 in everything that I touched in 24 That's hours. really fascinating. And so I wake up in a Toll Brothers house. So there's $100 to Toll Brothers. Uh, I sleep in a Casper mattress. I think they're, maybe, I don't know if they have a stock, probably. Invest $100 into that. Uh, you know, look at my iPhone, $100 into Apple. Um, and just keep doing that throughout the day and then add up, like, how many... Uh, companies are there that we use on a day-to-day -day basis that maybe you don't even think about. Uh, like the trash was picked up by Republic Services. Uh, $100 in them. I think companies that you like and use, chances are they're companies that other people like and use, and perhaps they have uh, a good future. I think that's really interesting. Do you know the Wall Street Trapper? Mm -mm. He gives the same advice. I found that really yeah. interesting. So he grew up in the inner cities, so just a totally different economic viewpoint. And he was telling people, don't wear it if you don't own it. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, everybody spends their money to have the fancy clothes and all that, but they don't own the company that makes all of that stuff. And I thought by way of a general principle, it's a pretty interesting idea. I very much hope that you do that. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. we have to wrap. Well, Where can people follow you? Well, on the Iced Coffee Hour YouTube channel, because we're going to have you on right now. We're so if you want to see this flipped, the Iced Coffee Hour, just type that in on YouTube and you'll see it. And that's, that's it. it.